It's a reading from chapter 2 of Luke, verses 22 to 40. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ and he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up, at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The word of the Lord. Uh, well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, as Jeff said, I am James Cooper. I'm an intern here at Trinity, and it is my delight to be sharing God's word with you this morning. Uh, before we get into it, let's please join me in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son in the way that we were able to remember him in these last few weeks. I pray that uh, as we hear from your word today, that your spirit would be with us. Give us hearts open to hearing from you. And I pray that when things challenge us, that we would delight in the chance to grow, to love you and to serve you more, and to serve our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the curious things about growing up in the house that I did was our relationship 
to time. And that sounds a little esoteric. That's not where I'm going with that. Lest you think I'm just being esoteric, all I mean is that the way that we thought about time in my household growing up uh, was curious. And it was, it was curious because, for the most part, um, it was very ordinary. And I don't mean to say that in a spiteful way. Uh, my parents aren't here, but I don't mean that to be offensive. Um, I'm just making the observation that growing up, the days, the months, the weeks, the hours, the way that we, we spent our time was more or less ordinary. Every hour was, was spent in some little thing or other, like homework or sports. Uh, every day was spent at school. My parents spent their time at work. Uh, the week was divided into five days of not so much fun, and then two days of not so much, not so much fun. And, and then it was back to normal, right? It was, it was very ordinary. Vacations, they came and they went, um, but then it was back to normal again because for the most part our life was dictated by that ever spiteful master, the academic calendar, who leaves you when you are done with school and then comes back when you have children or you become a teacher like me. Um, and so, in a myriad ways, the, the way in which we, we spent our time, our relationship to time, it was dictated by things that were not particularly extraordinary. And the one exception, and this is what was curious, though not surprising, the one exception was Christmas. And I'm, I'm sure it's, it's that way for a lot of you. We didn't follow a church calendar or anything like that, but we did celebrate Christmas. And I suppose it's not all that surprising because for most people, even people that aren't particularly Christian or decidedly not Christian, Christmas just, it kind of happens to you. It's like a force of nature, right? Thanksgiving comes, Thanksgiving endeth, and boom, there's Christmas. There's lights everywhere, the snow comes, the shopping starts, the special holiday edition of the Great British Baking Show comes out on Netflix. It's magic. Magic. Okay, Christmas is there, and, and if you're Christian, not only do you get the, the fuzzy, warm feelings of optimism that all of us experience around this time of the year, you know what it's really about. You know what it's really about. And maybe you've been here. Maybe you've been singing the hymns and reading the verses and listening to the sermons. And it's all somehow come together in this intensely spiritual, magical way. And even if you haven't been here, even if you were somewhere else, it was still magic. I was away at Christmas uh, last week with my family. Uh, we weren't here. We were, we were up north, and I, I won't say exactly where, but we were visiting this small-town church with my wife's grandfather, and they wanted to do something special. And as these things go, right, small-town church ambition outstripped available resources, and so it was a little bit corny. <laughs> The choir was a little too small for what they wanted to do. The volunteer readers were a little too unprepared to read. 
And, and the people around us in the pews, they were a little too unfamiliar to sing the hymns unaccompanied that were chosen for them for just that day. And so it was, it was, it was really awkward and corny, but at the same time it was magical because it was Christmas. And you could feel the spirit of Christmas even though, and maybe, maybe in spite of, and maybe because of the lack of professionalism. It's a little country church. It was great. And maybe that sounds a little bit hyperbolic, uh, the way I'm describing it, but I mean it in a very sincere way because some of the, the greatest moments of growth and insight that I've, I've had in my life have come to me around this time of year. It, there's, just, there's something about the juxtaposition, the juxtaposition of the, the bitter cold and the charged spiritual energy of this time. And it has its way of, of waking us up from this spiritual slumber that we can sometimes fall into. At least that's how I've always felt. And from about December 1st to December 25th, life is amazing. But the curious thing about spiritual highs, and you know where I'm going with this, is that they come every year, they come once a year, and then they're gone. So the, the day after Christmas, the 26th, think about the 26th in your mind, is it's always been really weird. On the one hand, it's just another day, right? But, but on the other hand, it is just another day. The previous day was amazing. The past 24 days were amazing because they sort of participated in this weird platonic way in, in, in the, the joy of the 25th. But today, today's just another day. Okay. Today's what, the 29th, it might as well be the 26th, they're the same. The tree's there, the lights are there, the presents are still there, and Jesus, well, he's still quite born, he's still there. But things are different on the 26th. Things are ordinary again. Instead of, uh, instead of going through this uh, seasonal affective disorder that people talk about, there's this uh, post-Christmas ordinariness disillusionment disorder that I go through. It, the spiritual high that I was feeling on the 25th is now magically gone, and it's St. Stephen's Day, and I don't even know who St. Stephen was, really. I think he was in the book of Acts. I, I would submit to you that perhaps one of the reasons that spiritual highs, like the ones that we get around Christmas, uh, are so fleeting is because when we go back to the routine of ordinary life, when the 26th comes, it is hard to believe that God could possibly inhabit and be at work in a world so uninspiring and at times positively discouraging as the world that exists after Christmas. But our, our passage today suggests otherwise. So our passage today came from Luke 2, after Jesus' birth after the famous events. And by comparison, Luke 2 is quite 
ordinary. There are no shepherds in the fields watching their flocks by night, encountering choirs, encountering choirs of angels. There's just a boy, his mother, his father, doing what everyone was supposed to do. Uh, you may have noticed uh, in the passage we read, Luke goes out of his way to emphasize that Mary and Joseph were fulfilling the law. That appears three or four times that, that they were doing this according to the law. And certainly there, there was a theological dimension to bringing the firstborn son to the temple to fulfill the law, and, and Jesus needs to go through that. But, but it also strikes us as somewhat mundane. They have to do this, so they go and do it. They've got to bring him to the temple. In the first few months of Jesus' life, in fact, the entire life of Jesus, those 30-some those years before we see him in his public ministry, uh, they were still constrained by what everyone else had to do. He was a baby, he was circumcised, he went to the temple, he was a boy, he grew, he learned stuff, he learned a trade, he made things, all in all a very ordinary Messiah. And it all begins here in Luke 2. But at the same time, what's interesting, in this same passage where we see a lot of ordinary stuff going on, we meet two people, Simeon and Anna, who see something extraordinary hidden just under the veil of the mundane. And the first is Simeon. Uh, we, we weren't told explicitly how long uh, in the text, but we can infer that Simeon was waiting for a long time for what he calls the consolation of Israel, that is, Israel's salvation. He would not die, the Lord said, until he had seen the Messiah. And so you can imagine, Simeon has this promise from the Lord, and as he gets older, he knows that the Messiah is coming. He doesn't know exactly when, but he knows that he can't die until he comes. And so every day, as he thought and prayed about the promises of the Lord, he would wake up in the morning and he would think to himself, will I see the Messiah today? Will I see God working salvation for his people today? And then I can die. And finally, finally, the day comes. The Messiah came, and Simeon sings this famous song. This is known in Latin, for you Latin scholars out there, as the, the Nunc Dimittis. Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. In other words, now I can die in peace knowing that you have done exactly what you said you would do all of those years that I've been waiting and all of those years that your people have been waiting, going as far back even as the prophet Isaiah. So that, yes, peace has come to Simeon, but peace has also come to God's people. In verses 29 through 32, Simeon, Simeon's not just, just making up these words. Simeon actually weaves together a number of different prophecies from the latter part of Isaiah, roughly uh, chapters 40 to 60, describing in Isaiah the coming of the Messiah, the salvation of Israel, and the inclusion of the Gentiles. 
that is, those who are not part of Israel. His eyes have seen this, verse 30. He has seen it. It is done in the presence of everyone. Verse 31, it's a a light to the Gentiles. Verse 32, in other words, what Simeon sees is that it is crystal clear to him that God is at work, and he is at work not just for the sake of Israel, but for the sake of the whole world. It's a glorious thing that Simeon sees, and it's all laid upon the head of this infant Jesus who is, remember, still an infant. And Simeon isn't the only one who does this. Anna, the prophetess, uh, who we see in verse 36, like Simeon, isn't someone that we really encounter elsewhere in the Bible. Like Simeon, she is presented in quite an ordinary way. Uh, She had probably been waiting for a long time, just like Simeon. We're told that she is an 84-year-old woman. She had been a widow since seven years after her marriage and had never ceased to be at the temple, meaning that she probably spent her widowhood, maybe 40 years, at the temple, waiting on the promises of God. And on this particular day, after all of that waiting, She came to the temple, probably led there by the Spirit, just like Simeon, and she saw the infant Jesus there, and with the infant Jesus, all the promises of God fulfilled. She had finally seen God do what he always said he would do, that is, save his people. And overcome with joy and thanksgiving, she goes out into the streets to tell everyone that finally, redemption is here. Two people, two stories, same child, same reaction, complete and utter amazement at the glorious workings of God. And we have to ask, why? Why so amazed? Because imagine for a moment that you're not you. You are Simeon, or you are Anna, and you have been waiting 40, 50, 60 years, almost your entire life, under an oppressive Roman government for God to do something, anything, to show that he was still there, and he was still at work, even though your life kind of sucks. Every day, the same. You pray, you wait, nothing changes. You pray, you wait, nothing changes. You pray, you wait, a baby shows up. Still nothing changes. At least not until after you're dead. And remember, that all of this thanksgiving, all of this praise, all of this prophecy from Sivian and Anna, all all this joy and amazement is directed at still quite an infant Jesus. There was no reason, humanly speaking, to think that God would work his salvation through, first of all, a man like Jesus, a carpenter from nowhere remarkable, 
And there was certainly no reason, humanly speaking, to think that while he was still a baby that God was at work. Even if Simeon and Anna had heard about shepherds and angels and magi from the Orient, all the stuff we heard earlier in Luke 2, even if they had heard about that, so what? The magi came, and then they left, and then things were the same. Christmas was over. And what was going on in the meantime? Same stuff. Yet, both Simeon and Anna spoke with such confidence that in Jesus, God had certainly, you pick up on the certainty, certainly accomplished what he said he would do, namely, free his people from their bondage and make himself known to the whole world. Even before it was fully accomplished, it was accomplished in their minds. All they had seen was the infant Jesus, and they had already seen the whole thing. All they had was the infant Jesus, and they already saw how history was going to play itself out. They had a way of seeing that is oftentimes different from the way that you and I see things. In in our gospel writer, Luke gives us hints as to how they saw things and how they came to see the things that they did in the way that they did. Because our gospel writer, Luke, of course, himself saw things in this way. One of the remarkable things about the the beginning of Luke, which many of you may have been reading in this Christmas season and hearing about in these last few weeks, is is the way in which the gospel writer, Luke, he has a way of, of punctuating the ordinary with the extraordinary. Things are never exactly what they seem on the surface in Luke, even though they really do seem to be so. There's shepherds abiding in a field, watching their flocks by night. That's okay. And then angels appear, right? Angels, choirs, lights, glory, prophecy, and then, oh, they're gone again. That's how Luke tells the story. Luke, as, of, as it were, he likes to, to pull back the veil, the cosmic veil of ordinary life, of dull, hard, oppressive life. Behind all of that, Luke says, the angels are singing. And then he puts it back. And Simeon and Anna they can hear the singing behind the veil because they've learned to listen. How do they do that? If there's, there's one thing that's clear about Simeon and Anna so far, it's that they were extremely patient, right? 50, 40, 50, 60 years of waiting, extremely patient. Both of them waited for substantial portions of their lives for promises whose fulfillment seemed highly unlikely, and they wouldn't even see fully before they died. For neither of them, however, unless you think uh, waiting as, as, as this passive thing, waiting was not a passive thing for them. Okay? When you, you and I think of waiting, we think about standing in line, right, doing this. And, and that's not them. Okay? 
they're not checking their phones waiting for the Messiah to come. Uh, for Simeon and Anna, waiting looked like lots and lots of prayer, lots and lots of fasting, lots and lots of, of hoping, of waking up in the morning and thinking that today might be the day. Notice how both Simeon and Anna are both hanging out at the temple when this happens. And both of them are accustomed to doing so. The temple, that is, that is God's meeting place with man, is where they want to be as they wait for God to show up. Secondly, both of them demonstrated this kind of utter devotion a kind of single-mindedness in seeing the promises of the Lord fulfilled. Simeon is described as righteous and devout. And, and Anna had apparently used her widowhood as a means to devote her life to service at the temple and to pray ceaselessly as she waited for the salvation of Israel. So both of them show a focus on God and his promises that is, uh, you could describe it as unwavering doesn't change. Thirdly, and this is uh, merely hinted at, both have a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit. Simeon is given a promise and led to the temple by the Holy Spirit, and Anna is called a prophetess, and she just happens to arrive at the temple at the right time like Simeon did. It's, It's very obvious that both of them have an active an intimate communion with God by His Spirit, even as they wait, and even as the world looks the same as it always had. And it's this intimate communion with God that allows them to see behind the veil and to see the mysteriously unfolding plan of God whose glorious end is clear to them even as it's just beginning. So I I asked us earlier to to imagine ourselves as Simeon and Anna. And it it can be interesting uh, to ponder what you and I might think if we were part of the story, what we might do or what we might say or think if we were hearing these events as they were unfolding. Uh, But I don't think we actually need to place ourselves particularly into this story uh, to see how we would have reacted. Because the opportunity to see that is available to us each and every day and each and every week as we look out into the world and we ask ourselves this question, has God accomplished what he said he would do or not? That's all we have to ask ourselves to know how we would have reacted. Because my own honest personal response most of the time is, no, no kidding me? The country is divided. The church is divided. Christians are publicly vilified and mocked in popular culture. You know, I've always believed in, in public schooling, but now I don't know. I don't know if I can trust my son, my, my nine-month-year-old son. I don't know if I can trust him there anymore because, honestly, I am afraid. We've got news coming in that China is clamping down on our brothers and sisters. Oh, and meanwhile, right, the sea level is rising. 
And while all of this is happening, meanwhile, my relationship to time hasn't really changed since I was a child. My life is dictated to me by things I can't really control and that seem to have nothing really to do with anything particularly remarkable. And and it's against this, this onslaught of negative imagery, of pessimism, of sometimes just complacency, uh, that I have images of a helpless infant who will grow up to be equally helpless as a man bleeding on a cross. Sounds absolutely ridiculous. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking or experiencing that from time to time. And you can come up with your own particulars. This, uh, this way of thinking is both uh, insidious, but it is also common. Because human beings living in a world filled with sin, the sheer weight, the inertia of both the Evils and even the simple seeming meaninglessness of life in the day-to-day seem like they must be met with something big, something spectacular, something glorious. This is the kind of thinking that we have because life seems so glum sometimes, and yet it's also the kind of thinking that leads us to despair. And for some, in Jesus' day, it led them to reject and ultimately to crucify him. And Simeon predicts this. In verse 33 and 35, he says that Jesus will cause many to rise, but also many to fall. He is the stumbling block, we read about elsewhere. He will be opposed, and his mother will have her heart broken, because ultimately Jesus will be killed, because not everyone in Jesus' day wanted a humble Messiah. Not everyone expected a humble Messiah. I would venture to say that most everyone did not expect a Messiah from a little town in a carpenter's family. Many of them wanted something far more glorious. They wanted a great political leader who would lead them out of the darkness of Rome and into the glorious light of freedom as an independent, sovereign nation, just like they had before. And Jesus, for all his talk, he wasn't going to do that. So they killed him. This is why Simeon says that hearts will be revealed. When Jesus first started his public ministry, there was a lot of initial enthusiasm. The crowds were going crazy for Jesus. Jesus was saying some great things. He was doing miracles. He was making bread. He seemed to have authority. But when people remembered who he was, and when it became clear that he was not the glorious king that they were looking for, the people left. They were upset. They were disillusioned. But those who, like Simeon and Anna, and like his disciples, eventually, 
who could see things differently, who could see things as they really were, these people stuck around. And, and even some of those did leave at the very end. The heart is revealed when our glorious expectations for God are met with the humility, humility and humiliation of the cross. Our hearts are revealed when our glorious expectations are met with humility and humiliation represented in the cross. Th- think about the last time something at work or in your family or, or just generally out in the world really upset you. It isn't that hard, actually, because we live in a hyper-connected age. I just need to turn on the, mo- the news for five minutes and I'll find something. I remember being in seminary when ISIS was in full swing, reading the reports that would come in of such and such numbers of Christians killed or so-and-so group of Christians being forced to flee, and it was relentless. And the temptation in those moments is to feel outrage, but also disappointment. When ISIS came, God is asleep. how I thought. Western culture is declining. I try to teach my high school students about goodness, truth, virtue, faith, hope, all good things, but I don't know I can do that. I don't know if I can win when all the world wants to do with my high school boys is entertain them. God is asleep. So the thinking goes. But, but he's not asleep. He's just not what I want. All the images I have in my mind for what redemption might look like in the world center around success, power, fame, glory. And when I have those glory glasses on, of course, a baby and a cross look ridiculous. They look even more ridiculous when I'm called to suffer as he suffered. But, but to think this way is to see within the veil. It's only to see at the surface of what's really going on. Now, I'm not suggesting that the, the solution here is to take off your glory glasses, right, and, and put on rosy ones so that every evil thing is really a good thing from the right perspective. That is an approach to suffering. And sometimes, though, it, it really isn't clear sometimes exactly what good will come out of the suffering we go through. Even though we are assured that God works things to our good, for many of us it's still mysterious until the day we die. And so I'm not suggesting that we just put on our rose-colored glasses all the time. But what I am suggesting is that even when the magic of Christmas is worn off, the cares of life return and wear down on the soul, it is an intentional, intimate prayerful communion with God by his spirit that he has given us in Christ and that works through ordinary and unmysterious things like word, water, bread, wine, prayer, fellowship with one another, ordinary things that the veil is pulled back and the angels sing to the glory of God for what he has done in Christ. Some of you have probably heard that list, right, that I just made prayer, word, those kinds of things, and you're already making your New Year's resolutions in your mind. 
And maybe you started last week, right? You, you have these list of things that you're going to do more. Pray more, read the Bible more, don't miss church because I woke up late more. I don't ever do that. And, and lists are great. Lists are great. Some of us, uh, most of us probably, me especially, really need lists to actually get stuff done. Uh, but I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that communion with God, okay, this thing that Simeon and Anna had, isn't essentially a thing to get done. It's a gift. And it is only the cares of the world, the lust of our eyes, the hardness of our own hearts that prevent us from taking it. Most of us, I don't think, lack knowledge of what it would look like for you to be in more intimate communion with God in 2019. I don't think we lack knowledge of what that would look like. If you do, just ask your neighbor. I'm sure he or she has about five different Bible reading plans, prayer plans, devotionals, emails lists that you could sign up for based on your schedule, flexibility, and whether or not this is the first time you're trying this kind of thing. Okay? We don't lack knowledge of how to be intimate with God. Our problem is a lack of resolve, a lack of motivation, a lack of heart, a lack of love for God in the ordinary times. It's easy to love Christ on Christmas and Easter. Not so much on April 15th when taxes are due. And you know what? Christ came to die for that too. So that ordinary sinners like you and like me, rather than running this constant treadmill of, of indifference and then guilt and then fervent activity and then cooling and then indifference again, that constant treadmill that we run from year to year comes up around this time, could experience real and lasting change because we have experienced real and lasting peace. So please, make the list, do them, help me do mine, but remember that we do these things not to obtain peace, but to drink daily from the well of peace we already have in Christ. This peace, this glimpse of glory that Simeon and Anna saw is always and everywhere available to us. Remember, just behind the veil, even as we wait to see it fully realized in all of its aspects at a time you and I may never actually see in this life. Nevertheless, Christ has come. He has died he is risen, and he will certainly come again. So take off the glory glasses, and in the dull and ordinary times, remember still that salvation is here. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word from Luke. Pray that you would be with us now in uh, this ordinary time of life, that you would continue to grow us, that you would continue to enliven our hearts, to know you better, to see behind the veil that you are indeed at work. I pray that you would bless many of the resolutions that we are making now to seek you more in prayer, to love one another better, 
to love your church and the work that you're doing better. I pray that you would help us in these good things, that you would encourage us to encourage us, to encourage one another. But I also pray, Lord, that we would never lose sight in all of our activity that communion with you is a gift. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.